but you have to keep striving and not just striving to because you want some reward. No, because out of your love for God and his love for us in rewarding us, we want to strive for, as it says in the Bible, a better resurrection. Hey guys, welcome back to Keep It at 99, here with another episode with a very special guest, uh, John Habib, who wrote uh, The Orthodox Afterlife, which we will talk about today. So just a quick little intro about John. Uh, John Habib came back to the faith of his youth and young adulthood after reading an afterlife story handwritten by an Egyptian Christian monk. This book that he wrote is the culmination of over 15 years of research on a quest to arrive at what the Orthodox Christian understanding of the afterlife really is. John is an avid student of Christian history and theology, having written several articles and delivered countless lectures on those subjects. John was born in Egypt and grew up nearly all his life in the U.S. He is also an attorney, having worked in criminal defense and prosecution for seven years before shifting careers and working as a procurement professional for large enterprises. He also serves as a subdeacon in the Coptic Orthodox Church and supports the diaconate and teaching ministries here at St. Mary uh, Coptic Orthodox Church. Additionally, he serves as the senior production manager of the publishing organizations of the Coptic Orthodox Southern United States Diocese, the St. Mary and St. Moses Abbey Press, and the Parthenos Press. Thank you, John, uh, for blessing us with your presence on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's been work to, to get you on here, but I really appreciate you taking your time to share your wisdom with us. Sure. Thanks. Uh, I hear great things about your podcast, so I'm <laughs> glad you. to be part of it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, so my first question for you is, like, you know, Obviously, you know, you, you, you started to research about the afterlife after reading a story, but what really prompted you to go all the way to writing a book about it? So, the, a couple of things. The first was, I was a bit scared to share the story because I felt like this subject is faux pas, like you can't talk about it in the church. And so, after compiling the story in English, I remember how it affected my life. And I remember a person who was walking on the wrong path, saw him at a convention where I was like a chaperone. He read the story and his life also changed. He's now a priest uh, in some other diocese. When I saw how it impacted the two of our lives, I thought to myself, I can't keep this story to myself. There were some aspects of the story that made me wonder how legit some of the aspects of it were. And so I also sort of challenged myself. I knew Christianity is the right religion. I know orthodoxy is the right denomination. And so I said, if I find any other bona fide orthodox Christian afterlife stories, I would expect them to be consistent and resonate with this one. And so I thought, if one story had that much of an impact, how much more could a bunch of stories that say the same thing to an extent and are consistent, um, how much that could have an impact. So that's, that's what really drove me to want to finally compile this, you know, this, this book together. Yeah. And I think like even me personally, after reading uh, the majority of your book, um, I, I found that, you know, the stories in there are so, they're, they're, they're so moving, right? It's like you read it and it takes like a whole day to process really what, what, what happened, what you're reading. And it causes you to think, you know, on so many levels. And honestly, there's so many more, but like moments when I was reading your book where I was just like, you know, 
<laughs> like maybe I should kind of, you know, take, take the afterlife more seriously. I think that's kind of the, the biggest takeaway that I got personally, um, was that it's real. It's like heaven exists, you know, hell exists. Like these things are real and they like as real as, as, as we say they are like the, this is what the truth is. Um, so first I really appreciate you writing a book about it. It's, <laughs> it's I, a great I, blessing. I thank God that I had the opportunity, um, and we just, in the right position to do so. So I thank God for that. And thanks for reading most of it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting to hear about the rest. I'll let you know when I, when I finish it. Um, so my, my follow-up question to that is, you know, is, so is this like quest for the, to find the answers in this book, is that what shifted your life around? Or was it a combination of other things? Like what, what you know, if you had a point to, you know, one thing that really changed your life, what would it be? So I was, it was before the book was written when I was um, after high school or kind of the end of high school and beginning college, uh, I started getting that sense of worldly freedom and I began to really drift into the world's lusts and desires and all of those things that keep you, you know, the, 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 the thorns that keep you from growing. And so I even started stopped coming to church and stopped taking communion and stopped confessing. And my life was really going downhill. I had bad influences, bad relationships, all of these things. I was living in a dorm, which was not a helpful thing, um, at least in my spiritual state. One day I come home and my mom is excitedly showing me this document written in Arabic. And I'm like, I can't read Arabic or barely can read it. And she's all excited, and she tells me, look what I have. I'm like, what do you have? Uh, this monk died and came back to life and was able to write about what he experienced. I'm like, first of all, what kind of monk? So she explains, you know, it's a Coptic Orthodox monk. And I'm like, how did you get this? Turns out he was, um, his sister is married to the um, brother of someone who lives in Augusta. And he was a close childhood friend of uh, my uncle Atif. Um, and so I'm like, okay, I get how you got it. I was intrigued, sat down. My uncle works for a company, worked for a company, still works for a company. But at the time he had a laptop, which were, which were not common things, at least yeah. when I was growing up. I sit down, I ask for him for his laptop. And for whatever reason, I wanted to write down what my mom reads to me and type it in English for some reason. As I was writing the story, my life went from one direction to another, just in that moment. And that impacted me greatly. And then as I was putting the book together, it further cemented the motivation, encouragement, and overall picture about the afterlife and the intensity one should have to be aware of it and prepare for it. And I think that speaks volumes too. Um, like the, the, the legitimacy of like divine revelation, right? A lot of people, or divine intervention, if you will. A lot of people like, they say, you know, yeah, like they hear these stories of God, like changing people's lives, literally. And they kind of like brush it off and they're like, no, nah, like it doesn't exist. But I mean, I've seen this even in my own life. Like, you know, when you really look at it from a big picture and you really look at where you came from and where you are now, and things that brought you there, it almost doesn't make sense, right? Just writing that, like translating a story, how does that go from, you know, change your life completely? 
Um, I mean, for me, it was reading the book Elements. Like, how does reading that book change the entire course of my life? That doesn't make sense. That's amazing. Tell yeah. me about that. I want to hear oh, it. <laughs> I mean, for me, it, it, I mean, reading Elements is, is something where, for me, I felt really personally connected um, to the main character, Elijah. Yeah. It's just kind of funny. My name is Isaiah. But, uh, <laughs> in the story. And I, I found myself, because this book is written, there's a lot of prayers that are written into it, kind of into the text. And I found myself, like before, I had never prayed. Like, I would never pray. I just never did. Um, I show up to church all the time. I'd sing hymns, whatever. That was it. Um, that's based on my spiritual life with God was Sunday mornings. And then I found myself actually praying the prayers as I was reading it. And just because I, 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 I'm, I'm the type of person that re- sits down and just reads the book until, until I finish it or until, uh, <laughs> or until I fall asleep. It's like the, it's like the two ends to it. Um, so I, I, mean, I read the whole book in one sitting. It took me like five hours. It was, and then I think just the volume of prayer and the intensity of that, of, of what I did, what it did is it caused me with all my like habitual sins just to die down out of nowhere. And I was very confused and it took me a couple of weeks to realize that it's from reading, through reading that book that I, some way, somehow God turned something in me, you know, and it kind of shifted the entire course of my life. So it's amazing. Yeah. And I've, I've heard multiple, like many stories from many people where, you know, it, and it always comes from people who have a desire for more, right? It's like, you know, God's not going to force himself to like to, to be in front of you. But I think for those who seek him, he will show himself. I think it's like a very um, common thing that I see. And it's something that, you know, a lot, like, I, I mean, I, for, a lot of people take for granted, including myself, where it's like, I'm just lucky that, you know, God uh, decided to show himself in the right time for me before anything happened. Amen. And it also helps to have a parent who's pleading to God every day that yes. you can <laughs> get back to normal. She yes. told me, my mom told me she she had a conversation with Emba Yusuf when I was in my going astray period, you know, and he was like, don't worry. You gave him a good foundation. He'll be back. And so um, she tells me that, you know, after all this, but... Um, anyways, good to hear about your stories. Yeah. I mean, I think the importance of parental foundation in, in, uh, people's lives is, it's something that in modern day society, people take for granted that they don't really understand the, the, like how, um, how vital it is that your parents put, like the path your parents put you on, you are, you're going to end up on some, some derivation of that path, right? You're not going to, there's no way. I mean, there's, there's, there's possibilities, but for the majority of people, you're going to end up somewhere down that, you know, along that line. So I think it's another responsibility for parents that they, they have enough of, but it's, it, and it, you know, it's something that I've noticed in my personal life with my parents, how, you know, how adamant they were that I would go to church, whether I liked it or not, how, when I was a young kid, how we would always pray together, always read like Bay together, you know, and they really put me on the path for success, even if I tried to deny it. For so many years, at some point, I was bound to, um, you know, take their advice. Amen. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think, you know, parents are always right. And <laughs> in the end, uh, you realize that. So I think, you know, it, it's something else that God uh, kind of humbles us with. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, another question I have for you is, um, obviously, you had this massive change in life. And something that I've noticed as a kid, and it's a question I've always wanted to ask you, and it's slightly off topic, but why do you wear a wooden cross? Good question. It's funny that you've yeah. never asked me this question, never answered it, huh? I've, I've never, I, I just never asked. So but. when I was going through 
um, this time period where I was shifting direction, I just happened to go, uh, I was at my dad's house and inside like the, the, you know, this dresser or something, there was, it's like glass panel and I saw this cross just sitting there and I thought it really looked beautiful and I asked my dad if I could have it. So I took it. Later on, I discovered that this cross very likely came from Jerusalem. My grandfather's brother used to be the Metropolitan of Jerusalem. So he was, I think, the first or at least one of the bishops ordained by Pope Corollas. I think he was the first, but in any case, that's the connection for how this cross probably got it got into my dad's hands and um, um, and how I found out one day some years later I saw a guy with the exact same cross just a little bit bigger because I've never seen a cross like this in my life except that one time and on the back it said Jerusalem clearly this one faded so it doesn't say it but the reason I put it on is I in that commitment to the new direction I used to go to previously I used to go to a lot of bad places say a lot of bad things, be among bad company. And I tested myself. I said, if you're going to live a true Christian life that's in the right direction, if you're embarrassed for this to be outside, prominently displayed, and you're embarrassed by where you are, who you're with, or what you say or do, then there's a problem. So it was kind of a, uh, a means of remembering who I need to be at all times and try to be consistent. Customer service, you know, in a, or it doesn't matter what it was. It just, you would have to remember, don't shame this symbol. And so there were times in that direction that I would falter pretty badly. Um, you know, thank God I would get back up again, but some of the deepest falls... I would lose my cross and I wouldn't find it until after I had made more adequate repentance. And then for some reason I would find it. Things like that would happen uh, on occasion. So I just felt very bonded to this cross and what it meant for me personally. I find that really interesting that like, you know, the cross was put on as kind of like a, like a shield, you know, and, I mean, for the same reason, I have a tattoo of a cross. I mean, that in the same way, as I was making this this change, this commitment to change, it came through like I need something physically to remind me at all times. You can't really lose a tattoo. That's not it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Um, so I think, and for me, it's the same thing. It's like the the biggest falls are when I forget that I have a cross on me, um, and it's you know when I look down and I see it, it it's. And it's kind of powerful. The sign of the cross really is powerful. I think a lot of people, a lot, all of us, including myself, take it for granted. You know, we never uh, see the true power of what we behold and what we have with us. I mean, if you, even if you think about just communion as itself, the body and blood of Christ, like there's no way that I take the body and blood of Christ on Sunday and then the next day, Monday morning, you know, like, and it's crazy. Like we never understand the power of what really, um, like we take in on a daily basis. Even. Certainly. I, I remember uh, an uncle here at church one time, uh, uh, you know, saw my cross and he asked me, he was like, 
you can't afford like a gold cross. Your mom's a doctor, like you can't get some. And I'm like, Christ died on a wooden cross. And so for me, it was just, I love the simplicity of it and reminds me of just the sacrifice. Uh, he was joking, of course, but, um, but you're right. It, that's really what it meant for me. And it's, it's kept me um, from embarrassing myself too much. Um, yeah. I mean, in, in all of our spiritual lives, right, there's, there's always ups and downs. Um, and I, I think, you know, after reading um, Elements, something I, I noticed is that there's no such thing as plateauing. Right? There's no such thing as my spiritual life is unchanging. You know, every single second, it's either going up or it's going down. And I think that part of understanding that is understanding the power of who God really is. You know, because if God is just some, something that shows up on Sunday mornings, then you can plateau the whole week. But if God is omnipresent at all times and everywhere, um, and the consequences are real, which is like, the main point of your book, the consequences are real. Um, it, it really forces you to kind of think of God in a different way, right? And it, it forces you to take, kind of like pull your life together out of um, like the struggles you're in because there's just no other option. Yeah, and there's a verse that uh, I came across recently uh, uh, talking about being serious and watchful and... Um, that's what these stories further cemented, this sense of needing to be serious and watchful. And when I think about the greatest superheroes of all time, I think of Pope Carolus, for example. Like, whenever I think about him, I go, that was a life worth living. Like, he lived his life in a successful way. He gained everything he needed, and now he's benefiting from all that he lived. Not that we all have to live as monks and, and go to live in a cave, but with the life you're given, read, you know, the other word that comes to my mind, I was sitting in a, I was actually um, a servant in a high school convention. And I remember Amber Yusuf giving a sermon. When you're the servant instead of the high school student, you um, end up paying a lot more attention to the <laughs> sermons. But I remember a phrase that he talked about, and it was a verse, um, that says redeeming the time. And that word, that phrase to me is prominently in my mind. And what I think about when I think about this book and preparing for the afterlife, redeem the time. This is the only time you get. So when you finish the book, you'll read a lot about the second chances and people I get. Will. I definitely will. <laughs> um, but like going with like what you just said, Rick, redeeming the time, I think something that a lot of Christian youth that go through this um, period in time in life where it's that shift from, you know, from the world to really living a spiritual life, you know, from previously living it as a kid. Um, one of the biggest things that I've noticed personally and among like my friends and my peers is that there's a fear of changing. There's a fear of leaving back what's comfortable and pushing towards what's spiritually like good for you. And because it, it's, it's a hard decision to make. It really is because you have to leave all the sins that you like doing, you gotta leave all the things that you enjoy, and you really have to live a life of, you know, a life that of, of sacrifice is really what it is. So what is your like, kind of like your advice to people going through that? You know, the imagery that I have in my head, which f had the most impact, was I imagined being 
Father Botros in that afterlife story and standing in front of that terrifying ordeal. And I have nothing to show for anything spiritual. Nothing. I was empty. And I imagined where my fate would be, where I would end up going if I were in that position. And today's gospel reading in liturgy where Christ said, basically, what are you willing to give up? Husband, spouse, children, mother, father. If you're not willing to give up anything that keeps you from me, you're not worthy of me. And remembering that there is a moment where you'll be taken into account and being ready for that moment, to me drives the whole purpose. If I know that is the outcome, I need to be ready. I've grown up with many people who have already departed, who were younger than me. I remember high school people who, who died, who were peers of mine. You, a lot of people are dying and you ask yourself every time someone passes away, were they ready? Were they expecting it? You don't want to be too late. I don't want to be too late. And so, but also don't feel like you're in despair. Another thing, you know, ever since this book, I had gotten much more, as you indicated in the beginning, much more involved in the publishing efforts of the, the diocese. I mentioned that because there's a particular book that his eminence, Metropolitan Yusuf, had mentioned would be worth putting together into a book. And that's um, the book called On Repentance and Defeating Despair. So it's published by the St. Mary, St. Moses Abbey Press. Um, that book is basically takes St. John Chrysostom's writings on not being in despair. Now, when you think of St. John Chrysostom, you don't usually think, oh, he's going to give me a good feel book to make me want to, yeah. you know, stay really, really close to God. And, keep, you know, you always feel he's going to just make you feel kind of bad for what you're doing. This book on repentance and defeating despair is the most uplifting book that makes you feel like it doesn't matter how bad you fell, you get back up and you're okay. You will be okay. So I usually tell people who have read this book, uh, Orthodox Afterlife, to also read on repentance and defeating despair because if they want to live a life committed to God, they will find the devil will work even harder to pull them away and they will find sudden drops in sins or whatever it is that happens. But making sure you don't fall in despair is key. Um, anyways, just wanted to, to share that. Yeah, no, thank you so much. I think, you know, in, in my own, you know, struggles to, you know, live a more godly life, um, I've noticed what, like we said at the end, where it's like the devil will pull at you more and more and more. And it's crazy to think about that, right? The, the people who live in the desert give their lives fully to God, they struggle the most, right? They, on a second, like every second, they're fighting the, a temptation from the devil. And it's, it's crazy. It's, it's so crazy to think that I'm going to go down this path and it's going to get harder and harder and harder. And it's like, it, it almost doesn't make, I mean, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. Um, but at the same time, it, it really shows like the power of God. Right? Amen. You, you go down that route and you know it's going to get harder and some way, somehow you make it through it. Amen. So, and yeah, I mean, that, I mean, if you look at any story in the Synexarian, 
I mean, you look at, for example, like St. Philip of his commemoration was today. I mean, like getting dragged on the street, getting, you know, tortured, scourged. Like this was, this is what they went through. And for us, like putting down our phones for 15, for 15 minutes and sitting in silence is like too much, you know, and it, it, it's, it's, it's kind of funny how that, how that works. But it just goes to show that in order to live a life with God, you have to live a life with God, right? You can't live a life with God one day and not the other day. And I think that that hesitation, it's, it's like the lukewarmness. It's the, most, it's the most dangerous state because you think you're doing okay and you're not. Whereas the people who are living in sin, they know that they're living in sin. But the people who kind of like go back and forth, they're like, no, I did enough to, to you know, cover it. And I think that you know, upon reading elements in this book, and um, it, really, it really shows you like there, there's no end to gaining more for God that doesn't finish you keep you keep striving until the end that's right it's like it's a race that never finishes that's right St. Paul said fight the good fight you know the the race isn't finished till you enter into heaven like as you said in your book um, I think it was uh, St. Macarius that's right as he's going up the devils keep asking keep telling him you've defeated us he says not yet like imagine imagine (laughs) that that level of humility you're on the way to heaven and until you enter into heaven you still don't and then when you get there it's because of christ and that's why the the dangers of the heresy of salvation in a moment this idea of i now believe in christ now i'm saved is so dangerous um because what else is after that yeah you can keep doing good things and but your salvation isn't you can't fall short of that salvation in that heretical mindset. Whereas Christianity has always teached otherwise, which is you're saved by God's grace, but you have to keep striving and not just striving to, because you want some reward. No, because out of your love for God and his love for us in rewarding us, we want to strive for, as it says in the Bible, a better resurrection. Uh, and so God incentivizes us intentionally, intentionally by greater um, rewards that he wants to give us. And he doesn't forget a single thing we do. What I found interesting is when you really think about it, you can do all kinds of great works for God. You can also do all kinds of sins. When you die, all the sins you have confessed, repented, and taken communion to wash away are not counted against you. But every good thing you've done is remembered. It's an unfair imbalance to weigh in your favor. It's reflective of God's goodness. And I think it, like, that proves God is fully just and fully merciful. right? The mercy in that he removes what we have repented for, what we've confessed and what we've washed away. But he's still just in that. He still weighs what's left with all the good things we've done. There's, yeah. still, there's still a justice system yeah. that is based on mercy. Yeah. And you can't separate the two. Yeah. And I think it's a very important distinction that a lot of people, a lot of contemporary Christians forget is that like, God is not merciful sometimes and judge, judgment sometimes. He is both in one at all times. Yep. You know, even in the Old Testament where it seemed like he was more judgy than merciful, I mean, he wasn't. It was fully just. It's just that the bad really outweighed, <laughs> really outweighed the good in a lot of situations. Yeah. 
and it's you know something that you know we have to appreciate. We, you know, you know, Christ died on the cross for us, so we don't. So that so that imbalance is there for us, and it's something that you know it, it's it's really sad when you see a lot of people who don't take confession seriously, that are in the Coptic Church, or people who don't confess at all because they're not in you know an Orthodox or Catholic Church, and it's 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 really sad to see that a lot of people devalue the importance of what I would consider, you know, and all sacraments, like there's not one more important than the other, but I would, I would say is probably the most rewarding sacrament on a, you know, when you walk in there full of your sin and, you know, really held down and you walk out completely renewed and fresh. Um, it's really sad to see when a lot of people devalue uh, like the importance of it. Amen. I mean, the confession experience is it's teacher and disciple. It's someone who's continually calibrating and recalibrating your spiritual life to make sure you aren't taking the wrong path. The monks have a, uh, uh, one of the stories of the monks, they say that basically you should never tighten your own belt, but only your father confessor. What that means is basically even in, con even in how you fast, it should be guided by your father confessor, even so that you're not doing so much that it defeats you or you feel maybe too prideful um, as opposed to, you know, doing less. But um, I agree that the value of confession and being obedient um, to that discipline is a great value. Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. And the thing about confession that makes it so great is that I mean, even from even from a completely like non-spiritual side of it, there's nothing that feels better, right? There's not a lot of people will 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 go to the conclusion that you know the priest will start judging you, and it's if you really think about it in perspective, I mean, think about how many confessions he takes in a week. Like it's just like not not that you don't matter, like he doesn't care, but it's just like there's so many sins, we all sin, and I think that in saying that you know. God, like the Buddha is going to judge me. It's almost a prideful thing to say. Like you're taking pride in yourself that you know a Buddha is really going to get mad at me because I, you know, I'm at this high level, whatever. Where it's like everyone's broken, everyone sins. So to kind of separate yourself, and it's another trap of the devil. I mean, it's it's, it's a sin, and you know you're not confessing. So Absolutely. It's it's really interesting how that that you know that dynamic works for people. Kind of devalue confession but absolutely absolutely and then when you hear when you read the stories in the book and how confession and the eucharist are tied to your readiness for the afterlife and that and getting past that terrifying ordeal it further solidifies and gives you a visual perspective that you can imagine how it really impacts your path to paradise. Yeah. I mean, it's a direct impact. And it, not only that, it also gives value. It, it solidifies the value given to when you go confess and when you're in liturgy, you know, preparing yourself to take communion. Because I think the, one of the biggest faults of the Coptic Church in modern society is the lack of people really feeling you know, that what they're giving, what they're get, receiving is the body and blood of Christ. It's something mm -hmm. I see, I saw myself for so many years. I see with people all around me of all ages, 
You know, it, it's it, Christ really means it when he says, be like little children so you can see. I mean, when you sit in liturgy and you sim- take, take out all the noise, you simplify it down to what's really being prayed, it, it changes your entire outlook on why you're there for three hours on every Sunday morning. Absolutely. Instead of it feeling like a chore or like a social event or like a, you know, let me show off. It's, it's, it becomes prayer. It becomes real prayer. And you, there's no, in my opinion, there's no, um, there's no stronger connection that you can feel with God than on Sunday morning when you're in liturgy. Amen. You know, when, when, when Abuna says, lift up your hearts to the Lord, I mean, and you say, we have, I, I like, when you when you really understand what's being said, you you realize how much, for so long you just kind of said it and whatever, you know. Think about lift up your hearts. We have them with the Lord. Just like that, just that part right there, it it shows that we are in heaven. Th- those three hours on Sunday morning, we are living with God, you know. And it's something that in the in the in the book Elements, like what it says is like, Chronos is defeated by Kairos, you know. Linear time is defeated. And it's just time with God. The sense of time is completely gone. And I think, you know, in real prayer, that's what it feels like. It feels like that God is infinite. He is unlimited. And our limited brains can't process it, so we don't process anything, just like children. And I think that's kind of, you know, what God mean, what God means when he says, become simple. Amen. Yeah, I mean, the, the simple see everything. So it's, uh, it's, it's really a blessing to you know, simplify yourself. And it's, it's something that in society, like we do a really bad job of, which is simplifying ourselves. You know, we're always moving, always doing stuff, always complicated, but it, it really shows when we try to sit for quiet time and, uh, those 15 minutes feel like seven hours because it just, <laughs> you just can't get through it. And it, you know, really slowing down your life, I think is one of the most important things you can do, you know, for your life on earth, your afterlife. Absolutely. And it's, uh, it, it really does kind of pull your whole life together. Absolutely. Anything else? No, um, uh, on that subject, no. Okay. Uh, so my, my, I have a couple more questions for you. My next one is, you know, when writing this book and obviously you've taken all these stories from all these different sources and you did an amazing job of compiling the stories with the verses, with the sayings of the fathers, like it was, it was beautiful first off, but did like when you were reading stories, did you ever see inconsistencies or was it all very consistent with uh, what was, you know? Yeah. So I'll tell you where, when I saw inconsistencies and it wasn't in the Orthodox stories, I used to go to a lot of bookstores. If you remember Barnes and Noble, um, <laughs> you know, they used to have books and, and buildings, but yeah. anyway, so I would, I'd go to the Barnes and Noble actually nearby here and would always go, at the, um, there's like a Christian section and then there was a, uh, a section for afterlife stories because it started becoming really prominent, uh, for whatever reasons. And as I would read, I would pick, I'll just pick up these books and just peruse through them. And every time I'll pick up a book, the next one would have inconsistencies to that one. I pick up the one next to that inconsistencies to that one, to the point where I remember picking up one book that was sold they had to pull it from shelves because the father who wrote about this boy's quote unquote afterlife story admitted he was lying. And he was, he was, he was making a complete lie in that story. And I remember reading the oddest things in that book. I'm like, this makes zero sense. 
and they weren't from Orthodox sources, and so I didn't have a lot of confidence in them in any case. When I was putting these stories together, the consistencies kept compounding over and over again. Um, I was just amazed at how consistent everything was. Uh, I just now there might be variations in particular people's experiences, but not to a point of contradiction and conflict. And that's what really, uh, you know, cemented it for me. I mean, when you would read something from 1500 years ago in some country far and far away, and then around that same time in some other country, even further away, people experiencing the same thing, it just, really was a testament to the validity of what I was putting together and what I was reading. And I think the small variations prove it even further, you know, because God is not like God, God is consistent. God is truth. He doesn't change he's the same yesterday, today and forever, but he's also personal, right? Every single person has some form of a personal relationship with God, whether that, whether it's stronger, it barely exists. And it just shows that, you know, we're so limited to the point God has to, you know, move some things around so that we, so every single person can understand it in the way they understand it. Yep. And I think it just, like, in the, in the fact that there's variations and they can't, they still, still doesn't contradict itself. It's so complex, just like God, you know, and, but at the same time, so simple. And it just, it just goes to show that, I mean, God is, God is really, is really working, you know, and it, there's this, you know, big group of people. Um, I think they're called agnostics, where they believe God created and that's it. Mm. After that, now it's left up to us. And you read these stories, not just these stories, read these stories, read other stories, just in general, spiritual stories, people going through different things, seeing different things. You read the life of Pope Carolus, you read, you know, Pope Shunuda's books, you read all these things. You experience life around you, you hear people's personal stories. And there's so many things that line up so perfectly it is almost impossible that humans, it is impossible that humans could do this on their own. 100%. And it's almost impossible that, you know, like when people say the Bible's fabricated and stuff like that, there's, there's no way. There's just not enough. That you, you, you can't put that many stories together across that period of time in that sequence, in that order, with those things in the way they're spoken, with the books that support it, with the, there's just no way. You just can't. I mean... I often think about the apparition of St. Mary in Zaytun as an example of you can't deny that this stuff is real. Millions of people, not just Orthodox people, saw her for three years. Yeah. You can't deny it. And it's just one example that testifies to the truth of Christianity and Orthodoxy and uh anyone who wants to just poke holes uh, are, are focused, unfortunately, on the wrong thing. And um, they're missing the opportunity to really uh, feel the wealth and depth of God's presence in their lives. Yeah. And after reading your book, obviously, you know, it, as, a, as a human being, right, you care for other human beings and you want other human beings to do the right thing. You want, like, as a human being, your goal, your goal should be to, for everyone to end up in heaven. And upon reading your book and seeing how bad hell really is, um, there's a lot of tension, not just within me, but anyone who reads your book, obviously, to go and try and, you know, help the people who don't really 
believe in God or who kind of push it off and stuff. So what is your kind of like evangelistic, if you will, advice um, to try and, you know, get people to see the truth? Well, um, one thing that I did have in mind when I was putting the book together is for it to be accessible to anyone, regardless of their denomination. So while it's called Orthodox Afterlife, the reason there's a glossary in the back is because I want people to be able to pick it up, and if they don't understand it, they can go to the back and get some clarity. That was really a a main point when I was uh, putting the book together. I'm reminded of the number of times Christ walked away. If you go look at how many times he walked away, um, not because he was leaving them, because they left him. Either they had decided in their hearts they weren't going to listen or whatever it may be. The number of times people didn't listen to St. Paul's preaching. I mean, we are just, you know, we're not St. Paul. We're not St. Peter. And they were not able or people were not receptive completely to their message. So the whole world didn't change and become Christian just because they heard St. Paul and St. Peter. But it didn't keep them from trying. And I think the message for me is we want everyone to be saved as Christ himself wants. Whatever we can do to help be a part of that process we need to do. Don't be discouraged. Don't be oppressive about it. But God works. I was talking to someone today who uh, he and another uh, person happened to find orthodoxy. They lived a life uh, in another denomination. and they just happen to find orthodoxy by the most odd of ways. And it, it completely impacted their journey. God will find those who are seeking him and be ready to be a conduit for that message. Now, if you're living a life that is shameful or you're living a life where you don't know much about your religion, you don't know much about God, you don't have a deep spiritual life with him, you have now kept God from using you as an instrument because you are actually a detriment. So continuing to abide with God, and he'll put you in the right places and the right ways to meaningfully use you for his, his purpose. And I think that kind of combines like a lot of the things we said, where it's like, you always have to strive for God, and God will seek those who seek him. Um, and I, I think it's very, imp- it's very important, it's very powerful that this message that God really cares you know, and it's something that we see in this world. A lot of people are like, you know, why do bad things happen? You know, a lot of people try to use that as like in a like, as kind of like evidence that God doesn't exist or He's not in it for their good. And obviously, you know, iron sharpens iron, and you know, there's there's a lot of examples that prove against that. But it kind of shows how people. A lot of people use those excuses to not be respect, receptive. Re, sorry, receptive. In the same way, even Orthodox Christians themselves themselves use those to not be fully receptive and to fully change um, in the way they should. And I think that a lot of it comes down to humility. Like a big chunk of it comes down to humility because if you understand, you know, what God is compared to you, there's no way that you, uh, and if you experience God, you know, there's no way that you kind of push it to the side and at some point, you can push it for as long as you can, but at some point, it's, you're going to end up uh, having to go down that route. Basically. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that when you you bring to my mind something else, and that is God's fairness. Um, when you think about why bad things happen, 
What's beautiful about the way God designed everything is he will compensate. And if you're not compensated partially on this, in this life, he will certainly compensate you in the next. Um, uh, there's one story in there that just has a very deep impact uh, for me. Um, and it was brought to mind recently because, um, as you know, uh, um, our dear beloved priest's uh, sister passed, I think, from cancer. And so um, there's this story of this woman who had cancer. And for um, and the way I got this story, I have to give you this. Um, there's a monk named Father Bishoy Il Antoni, so he was the St. Anthony's yeah. Monastery. He happened to come to Atlanta one, one day while I was writing this book, and I knew he was known for his stories, and so I told him, I, I'm sure you have afterlife stories. Please tell me. So he tells me this story personally. On the phone, he tells me this story about this woman who had cancer, and for a year she was going around begging God, going to all these different churches, begging God not to let her die, let her to be healed, because she also has a daughter that's very young and she wants to take care of. And a person who is not firmly rooted in knowing that God is love and just and he will compensate would easily find what happens next to be unfair and they would make them turn. Well, this woman for a year is going around trying to and begging and eventually the cancer takes over and she's on her deathbed. And she ends up, as she's dying, sees the experience both the terrifying ordeal, you can read it in the book, but also what happens afterwards when she gets past the terrifying ordeal and sees Christ. And what she says to Abuna during that moment was the complete opposite of what she had been begging for for the last year. She has the opportunity right there, Christ, please let me go back. She says the complete opposite. I don't want to go back. I want to stay. I want to stay here in paradise. She's going to be okay. That story for me, it's a real story told by someone who saw it firsthand and reminds us never to let the devil play with us when it comes to this, why do bad things happen? God compensates, and that's why everything you do willingly or you have to deal with unwillingly, God will give you that and, you know, much, much more glory and reward for bearing through it. And I think that, and there's another book, story in your book that is very, very similar where this guy who's very poor, mm. um, mm -hmm. and he's giving all the time, always giving, and he ends up uh, dying and he wakes up in his own coffin. Um, and God, God told him, you have three more days, or he told him, go back three more days, tell people to, to give and, you know, yeah. come back. And he was yep. begging God to to take him at that moment. And it just shows that, like you said, God is fair, right? This guy, he was poor. He was giving, he was still poor after he was giving and, um, God rewarded him in the end. And mm -hmm. I think that, you know, a lot of times, you know, people, cause it's so hard to, to think I'm going to get re rewarded after I die, you know, because it, we don't understand the life after we, 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 we can't, you know, cause we're not dead. Um, so, it's it's very it's very hard thing for us. But it, again, it goes down to humility. It goes down to faith um, in who God really is, and not taking, 
you know, Christ really for granted. I think that, that it, like all these stories is what they show is that not just that God is real, but not to take it for granted, you know, especially being born in the church, being raised in the church with parents that almost forced me down uh, the path and, you know, with people around me, servants and to, you know, nurture me in the right way and the talents that God gave me, you know, it would be a disservice to God if I didn't use my, use what I have to try and pull people uh, towards him. Amen. Yeah. I mean, that, that's all for me. If, uh, <laughs> that's all for you, unless you have anything else you want to say. No, I mean, thanks for the opportunity to uh, get to chat with you, and uh, I uh, hope you finish the book, and we can talk <laughs> about it after. <laughs> Thank <laughs> no, you, no, John. No. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so much, John. So, uh, the link to the description of the book is going to, the link to the book is going to be in the description. Uh, thank you guys for watching. If you enjoyed it, subscribe, like, share. Uh, and that's all. Thank you. Thanks.